Hello, I'm Catherine Bray, saw fan, and chained to the wall in a windowless room with me are fellow saw fans Anna Bogatskaya and Charlie Shackleton. This is Seeing Saw, the official Spiral podcast. Welcome, Anna. Tell us a bit about yourself. Hello, I am a longtime Saw fan, also a writer and the co-founder of the horror collective The Final Girls. Welcome, Charlie. What's your deal? Hello, my name is Charlie Shackleton. I'm a documentary filmmaker and occasional film critic. And I think more to the point, I have seen all of the Saw films an absolutely unfathomable number of times. So for this podcast, we are re-watching every movie in the Saw franchise and counting down to the release of Spiral the latest and potentially greatest chapter in the Book of Saw, out May 14th or May 17th if you're in the UK. That's starring Chris Rock, Samuel L. Jackson, Max Minghella, Marisol Nichols, and a ton of other good people. But this week, we're returning to the dank bathroom where it all began with Saw, from all the way back in 2004. There will be discussion of blood and guts and feet being cut off, there will be spoilers, all that good stuff. So if you're new to the franchise, we would suggest watching the relevant film first, then listening to the episode. Now, before we hack into Saw, the film that started it all, I want to ask you guys, when did you realise that you had become a disciple of Jigsaw? By which I mean, tell us about your first Saw experience, Charlie. I can't actually remember my first one because my main memory of the Saw films when they were coming out is seeing the bus posters up around London and being strangely petrified of them. I was very squeamish as a teenager and I couldn't watch horror movies. And these incredibly grisly posters seemed to tell of some like unknowable horror being shown in cinemas every October, which I rightly shied away from. And then I think it was probably only when I was in my very late teens, early 20s, that I actually ventured into the world of Saw. And it took me a little bit of time, but soon I became just obsessed with every little detail and the puzzle that is this massive franchise and have been re-watching them and re-watching them ever since. Beautiful. How about you, Anna? What's your Saw origin story? Well, I actually saw it when it came out, which I reckon was probably 2004, maybe early 2005 in Spain, where I grew up. And actually, I was going through a phase where I would exclusively date guys who were lead singers in punk slash screamo bands and <laughs> potentially had nipple piercings. So I vividly remember seeing Saw and then showing my teenage boyfriend at the time, who was in a screamo band and did indeed have nipple piercings, the first Saw film in a dank warehouse that was his rehearsal studio. And I just <laughs> remember watching his face the entire time because I had seen the film, but I was pretending like I had not seen it. So I just wanted to see his reaction to the film, both the violence and the twist that happens in it. So I had very, very fun memory of watching the first Saw film. I love it. Pretense is kind of in there in both of our origin stories because I was 21 when this film first came out and I was working on a movie magazine. It was my very first job. I was super excited. But I thought because I'd got this job that I sort of had to pretend to like be very above everything and like I'd seen every film. It was the year of Sideways, I think, The Wine Guys and The Grudge. And <laughs> my thing with horror at that time was just having to pretend that like, it was totally fine. I was totally chill with it. And actually, of course, inside I was screaming because it's really hard to watch stuff in Saw. But these days I'm much more chill and able to say like that scene really put me off my food. <laughs> Curious. 
Not that it does anymore. Yeah, I can just sit there digging into the barbecue ribs while a guy gets disemboweled. It's fine. I was always a barbecue and disembowelment type gal. I think Saw was the film that made me realize that and kind of embrace it and start showing it to other people, which then, you know, leaves it up to them to decide whether they were okay with that or not. It's your horror coming out franchise. Exactly. So I guess that's our context for the film, but we should dial the clock back a bit and look at what the wider context was for Saw coming out into the world. Maybe Charlie Professor Shackleton would like to handle that one. Thank you very much, my correct title. Yes, so we're going all the way back to the beginning with this one, back to the early 2000s, when we have two recent Australian film school graduates, James Wan and Lee Whannell, coming out of school and writing this script. Well, Lee Whannell writing this script, James Wan keen to direct it, called Saw. They tried to get it made in Australia for a time, unsuccessfully, what could have been. Uh, the Australian Saw franchise that we never got, before coming to Los Angeles and making it there on a very low budget of $1 million. And it became the film that we now know, which we will be discussing further. But perhaps before we jump into our discussion of Saw, we'll do a quick plot recap for anyone who might not have seen the film recently. Yes, because one of the things about the Saw franchise is that the plot can get quite involved. Rewatching these films for the podcast, I was just sort of surprised by how much plot there is and kind of how well it all ties together. I mean, we're going to get to all that. Charlie, the plot of Saw. So, in brief, and please do uh, interject if you have any questions or anything is unclear, but we'll do a, a quick run-through. So the film opens... Photographer Adam Stanheit and oncologist Dr. Lawrence Gordon wake up in an industrial bathroom. Their legs are shackled to pipes. Between them lies a corpse in a pool of blood in the centre of the room, holding a gun and a cassette player. Both of the men find tapes on their persons. They play these tapes and they're given tasks by a mysterious disembodied voice. Dr. Lawrence Gordon must kill Adam Stanheit before six o'clock, otherwise his abducted wife and daughter will be killed. Adam Stanheit must sort of survive. It's not entirely <laughs> clear what his task is. Adam's mission is vague, isn't it? A little vague, but he's got it. He's ready to move forward with the task. One thing worth mentioning is that there was actually a key to his shackles that was in the bath with him when he first woke up in the room. That, however, unfortunately, went down the plug hole when he accidentally pulled the plug out with his foot in his surprise. It's like the first thing you see in the film, isn't it? A key going down the plug hole, but you don't know what that is until later. Yeah, I mean, if he hadn't pulled the plug out, he would have been absolutely laughing. He would have been out of the trap in five minutes. Yeah, it would have been a short film, not Just a feature film. look in the bath, there's the key, mm -hmm. off you go. The voice also instructs them to follow their heart, and then they look around the bathroom and see on a toilet cistern a sort of heart smudged in... Fecal matter, possibly. Never entirely made clear whether the brown stuff on the walls of the bathroom is poo. So Adam Stanheit opens the toilet system and finds a bag containing two saws. Initially, they assume they're meant to uh, saw through their chains. When this proves futile, Dr. Lawrence Gordon realises that, in fact, they have to saw through their feet and realises, somewhat belatedly, it must be said, that they must be in a trap set by the at-large serial killer, the Jigsaw Killer. He knows this, he says, because he himself has been a suspect. Bam, bam, bam. That's why he's got a, a doctorate. He's a smart one. Exactly. It only it takes him 15-odd minutes. <laughs> Flashbacks reveal previous jigsaw traps targeting various people. There is a trap targeting the suicidal accountant Paul Leahy, 
who finds himself enmeshed in a kind of barbed wire cage. We can talk more about that. There's the software analyst Mark Wilson, who finds himself covered in flammable jelly with a certain task to complete. I'd forgotten he was a software analyst. That feels important. Yeah, he's software analyst Mark Wilson. I (laughs) should credit at this juncture the official Saw wiki which has been providing me with the full names of all of the... And professions. And professions of the fleetingly seen Jigsaw victims throughout the franchise. Can we imagine that Jigsaw found his victims through their LinkedIn profiles, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, he possibly he'd hired him as a software analyst to develop some previous traps and then found out, in the case of software analyst Mark Wilson, his terrible crime is having defrauded a health insurance company for which Jigsaw covers him in flammable jelly and makes him carry a candle around a room covered in shattered glass. And, I mean, maybe we should say as well at this juncture, like, why is this happening? Why is he kidnapping these people? In this case, it's... Well, we don't really know yet at this juncture in the film. I mean, there's a suggestion from the tapes that this is some sort of self-improvement process, that these people are wasting their lives in some way and Jigsaw wants to make them appreciate their life. But that really comes into focus when we meet heroin addict Amanda Young, the sole survivor of a Jigsaw trap, who testifies to the efficacy of the jigsaw method for having given her a renewed appreciation for life. At one of these crime scenes, I think it's the software analyst Mark Wilson's crime scene, a pen light is found belonging to Dr Lawrence Gordon himself. The police go to his hospital where we briefly see the orderly Zepp Hindle. He's important. Who's tending to a patient with a soul patch. (laughs) (laughs) He's played by a guy from Lost who has a really great creepy face, right? Michael Emerson. Michael Emerson. Yes, he's such a fantastic baddie. He looks like a sort of worm-tongued Lord of the Rings kind of guy and delivers all of his lines in exactly that tone. So Dr. Lawrence Gordon gives the police his alibi and for the most part they back off. Dr. Lawrence Gordon. They do do a really weird thing of letting their prime suspect then watch an interview with Amanda Young. Standard procedure. Come on, Catherine. (laughs) He is an upstanding member of society. He is a white, rich man and he's a doctor. He's a respected cancer surgeon. Why wouldn't you want his input on Amanda Young's traumatic experience with the jigsaw killer? However, police detectives David Tapp and Stephen Singh do manage to track down Jigsaw's workshop where they find Jigsaw himself presiding over a trap with a man called Jeff Riddenhauer. And they manage to save Jeff Riddenhauer, but Jigsaw gets away before they're able to identify him even because he's got a hood over his face. and He's, he's wearing sort of, a magician's cape. He's standing at strategic angles. Detective Stephen Singh, however, is killed by a booby trap while making his way through the workshop, while Detective David Tapp has his throat cut by the Jigsaw killer, who has a retractable... Wolverine blade under his coat. David Tapp played beautifully by Danny Glover. Yes, you you can reference the actors. I'm very much in the world of the Saw films. These are real (laughs) people to me. But Detective David Tapp survives and subsequently becomes obsessed with the idea that Dr. Lawrence Gordon is in fact the Jigsaw killer and that it was him that attempted to kill him in the workshop. Even after he's left go from the police force, he dedicates himself to bringing Dr. Lawrence Gordon to justice. He even sets up a surveillance operation monitoring Dr. Lawrence Gordon's house, which itself is full of pictures of people on the walls and some mysterious sort of brown smudges. A lot of overlap between the good guys and the bad guys in these films in terms of uh, interior decor choices. Yeah, that bathroom is disgusting, although I must say when you first see it, there's a little bit of me that's like, renovation project? That could be really beautiful. It's spacious. It's get very a spacious. tub in there. Well, I don't want to get off course here, but it did occur to me on this 10th rewatch of Saw, 
what kind of bathroom is this? It's one with two toilets. There's two cisterns, at least. Because it's like an industrial-sized bathroom. I thought maybe they'd like taken the doors off and that these were stalls previously, but it's got a clawfoot bathtub in it. It's not clawfoot, though. No, that's my ambition for its interior design makeover. Okay, it's got but a bathtub the, That's in the it. mood board. <laughs> that's the after picture. we got to move on. we got to move on. <laughs> Inside Dr. Lawrence Gordon's house, currently being monitored by Detective David Tapp, is... Zepp Hindle, the orderly from the hospital, who is revealed to be holding Dr. Lawrence Gordon's family, Alison and Diana Gordon, hostage. Uh, as six o'clock nears, Zepp Hindle has Alison Gordon call her husband, Dr. Lawrence Gordon, and tell him not to trust Adam Stanhite, the man he's locked in the bathroom with. At this point, an argument ensues, and Adam Stanhite reveals that he was the one stalking Dr. Lawrence Gordon on behalf of Detective David Tapp who was investigating him, thinking he was the jigsaw killer. Dum, 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 dum. dum. It gets to six o'clock, the time is up, and a fight ensues in the apartment between Zepp Hindle and the family. Alison and Diana Gordon are able to escape, but hearing gunshots, Detective David Tapp runs over to the apartment and has a confrontation with Zepp Hindle, who kills Detective David Tapp. Meanwhile, Dr. Lawrence Gordon hears those gunshots over the phone and, fearing the worst, soars off his own foot, as promised in the marketing materials before shooting Adam Stanhite with the gun from the hands of the corpse in the room with them. Wow, that's such a lot. Surely there can't be any more plot to come, Charlie. Zepp Hindle, having killed Detective David Tapp, then arrives at the bathroom to also kill Dr Lawrence Gordon, but is overpowered by a still-alive Adam Stanhite who batters him to death with the toilet tank lid. Dr Lawrence Gordon goes to find help, just as Adam Stanhite finds a cassette on the body of Zepp Hindle, revealing that Zepp too was merely following orders of the jigsaw killer in order to be given the antidote to a slow-acting poison coursing through his veins. Suddenly, as he's listening to the tape, the corpse in the middle of the room rises up and we see that it's the patient with the soul patch from the hospital. And that no. he... No! Thank you. <laughs> the jigsaw killer has been present in the room the whole time and now he leaves Adam Stanhite to die in it. Game over. It's so wild to me that this film, which got praised for sort of this very simple setup of two guys in a bathroom, they've got a sword, they've got to get out. Actually, the plot is that. It's so involved. I mean, that's a lot of people. Who are actually the sort of the key players out of all of this mob of characters? Well, they're all key to me. However, yes, our central figures are, I would say, Adam and Lawrence are two men in the in the bathroom. Dr. Gordon, please. Apologies. He didn't go to medical school for you to disrespect him like that. And Jigsaw, he's not even really a key player in this one, arguably. I would say like Zep is the bigger role. Well, yeah. I mean, it's striking how little the actual Jigsaw really appears or is even kind of relevant. Zep, obviously, to the viewer, seems to be the Jigsaw killer for the majority of the film. And really plays the part, as you were alluding to, with his sort of crazed eyes. Not to mention his real, like, vicious... Maybe he's doing this because he wants the antidote to the poison coursing through his veins. But he really gives his all to the role. Yeah, he's gone mm. full method with it. There is no need for someone who is being blackmailed to obtain the antidote to a poison coursing through his veins to hold a stethoscope to the chest of a child that he's kidnapped so that he can apparently listen to how terrified she is. I mean, that's unnecessary. How else are you going to get into it? 
<laughs> yeah, he's sort of clearly taken the approach of, like, I can't do these monstrous things without sort of pretending that I, Zepp Pinnell, am a monster. It's very generous to the film itself because obviously it makes it a much more enjoyable watch when you're thinking that he is the jigsaw killer and, you know, really just feeling bad for him at the end when he's not. And let's talk about Danny Glover because he's certainly important, at least at the time when the film was being marketed, he's kind of one of the main guys. Well, he's one of the better known actors, isn't he? Together with Carrie Elvis, obviously. Even though it's a two-hander between him and Lee Wanell, who plays Adam and is the screenwriter of the film, Carrie Elvis is the leading man of the film. And Detective Trab, Danny Glover, is kind of through the marketing and through the initial part of the film, is positioned potentially as the detective whose story we will be following. But that's also kind of a decoy. He's not that important. I'm sorry, Charlie. I mean, he's one of the very, very few characters in the franchise who doesn't return. And I think fans expected him to return time after time as each of the subsequent films came out. Well, apparently one of the biggest audience surprises when the film was being released was when Danny Glover gets stabbed. Because he's one of the better known stars. People were not expecting him to get murdered. He's sort of a decoy three ways, isn't he? Because Mm. you think that he's going to be the protagonist detective. You think when you're watching the latest Saw films that he's going to come back. And I also had a moment of like, hang on, is he the serial killer? He gets a scene where he's looming up out of the shadows and... Adam's like, it's this guy with a cut throat and you have this moment, even though it wouldn't make any logical sense of like, is that the guy? Is Carrie Elwes the guy? I mean, the first time I saw Saw, I remember like having suspicions in basically every direction. I think he's very good at doing that, even if there is actually only logically one solution and it's the solution that we get at the end of the film. The thing I think I find sort of difficult, though, about Saw is to kind of really remember how it felt when it was just this single film separate from the massive story world that it goes on to become. So I think it does a good job of establishing like a lot of the tropes of what the Saw franchise would go on to be. But the fun thing, I think, is that they didn't necessarily know that those things were going to be important. You've got stuff like Billy the Puppet, who, I mean, I love Billy the Puppet. I think he's in there just because he's creepy. Oh, yeah, 100%. I think that's true. In fact, I think they've probably even said that in some interviews or commentaries. It was just a creepy puppet that they actually made when they were making the Saw short film, Saw 0.5. But I think that's the thing that really we misremember about the first Saw because of the legacy of the franchise and how huge and extremely intertwined the franchise would become. But the first Saw film is essentially a low-budget thriller That's kind of also a horror film, but it's not as horrific as people remember it to be because of the influence and the cultural legacy of the entire Saw franchise. When you revisit the original Saw film, and I think I've rewatched it twice in the last few days, it's actually just a really tightly scripted indie thriller. It plays around and owes a lot to David Fincher, it plays around and misdirects us through Danny Glover's character to think that it's a detective story obsessed with a serial killer and chasing a serial killer. But really, it's this intense two-hander between two guys locked in a room. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we started talking about Danny Glover through the lens of this big franchise and how his character fits into that. But of course, you've got to remember at the time, they had a million dollars to make what they thought was going to be a straight-to-DVD horror movie, and all they could afford was two days of Danny Glover's time. So that's why he dies, because they need to get rid of him. They can't afford to take him to the bathroom or anything else. And yes, I think, likewise, that makes some sense of the fact that this is a horror film whose two central actors are Carrie Elwes from The Princess Bride and the film's unknown writer. 
<laughs> which kind of works like a charm and in hindsight feels really appropriate for the franchise, but must have been a very strange proposition at the time, as well as things like, you know, the director bringing in this puppet he's made and saying it needs to be in the film. Well, actually, I don't think it's such a strange proposition at all. I can 100% imagine being in a room where these two guys, aspiring filmmakers, were pitching, like, you know, imagine this, there's a room and it's real dirty and you don't know where you are and it's all dark and like these two guys wake up and they're chained to the wall. Boom. Movie. And I'm one of the guys, <laughs> says Lee in the corner. And I mean, these producers were all in. You know when Amanda has to get the key out of the stomach of mm. a guy who's lying there on the floor, otherwise the bear trap's going to close on her head? That's one of the producers. Yes! That's how budget this movie is, that the producer has to play the guy with an overdose of opiates who's having a key dug out of his stomach. Well, and I think the interesting thing is by the time the likes of us became aware of the movie when it was coming out in cinemas, they had already built the image that the franchise would go on to have. So, you know, you had that famous poster with the, weirdly, with a severed hand, as opposed to the more obvious foot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they didn't want it to be a spoiler for the foot. It's good misdirection. <laughs> You're right. But already, you know, this image of the film as a kind of like gore fest, mm. like challenge to the audience had been established. It's really interesting to think about how it would have been seen when it first screened at the Sundance Film Festival in January of that year, 2004, when, like you say, it was really sort of a thriller. And I think people would have been viewing it more in a seven mold or a memento even, and not really seeing it as a horror film. And in fact, when you revisit it, or seeing it as a horror film, but not the kind of gore fest that it came to be seen as. It's striking watching it now, especially in relation to the films that followed, how little gore there is. Really, these very, very brief sights of what's happening and much more about the reaction of the person it's happening to. I mean, I think it's because the scenarios are sort of relatively down-to-earth, relatively relatable, at least sort of compared to some of the stuff that will come later in the franchise. You can picture yourself chained to a radiator, could you saw your foot off in order to potentially save the life of your family? Like, that's something... Did you? Well, I was thinking about this. If I was going to do it, I think he goes in with the blade at the wrong part of the leg. And that's quite mm. surprising because he's a surgeon. He's sort of mm. like low on the shin. But I was looking at my foot this morning and I think what you would do is go in through the Achilles heel, the soft bit at the back of the foot. And then there's the bit where the main bone of the leg comes down and meets the metatarsals. Of course, you're not a surgeon. I'm not a surgeon, but I'm claiming this is to know surgery. more about surgery in this instance than Dr. Lawrence Gordon, who I think approaches it in a really inefficient way. I think you want to get the blade into the bit between the metatarsals and the main bone of the foot. And I think you're going to have an easier time with it. You're going to get through quicker. You're still going to be able to get the manacle off. And I think you're going to have an easier time with any sort of subsequent prosthetic than soaring it off sort of almost halfway up the leg as Cariel was. The level does. of disrespect to Dr. Lawrence Gordon that's happening in this booth right now. <laughs> in his defense, he's panicking. He <laughs> thinks that this is his last moment to save his wife and child. So I don't think he's been thinking about it. But I, in my defense, you have got time in this scenario to have a think about how you're going to get in there with the blade. I do wonder why do people kind of go straight for the amputating your own foot? Why not break it? Well, that's almost a spoiler for a later entry in the Saw film. If it can happen franchise. to a foot, it happens in this franchise. <laughs> and we'll be discussing them all over the coming weeks. Uh, a couple more fun things about this ultimately being a low-budget indie film. The entire film, all of the scenes, even the driving ones, were shot in a single warehouse studio space. Dr. Lawrence Gordon's apartment looks like a trendy loft slash all of the apartments from the film The Room. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
And then whenever he leaves the apartment, he seems to be just still in the apartment, but now it's styled like a hospital or a car. There's a lot of corridors in this film. Yeah, I think this might actually be Saw too, but uh, there's certainly one of the films where you've got police walking down a corridor and there's all these doors and it's actually the actors' dressing rooms. That's how budget... (laughs) I mean, one of the, I think one of the beauties of the first Saw film is that there's two very distinct separate experiences when you first watch it and you don't know the twist of the film and it's entirely plot driven. You just want to find out what happens, who's Jigsaw, what's going on, who's going to survive, right? And then once you start the rewatches, you start seeing all the seams and you start appreciating how they created a blueprint for a type of horror and an accidental blueprint for a massive franchise that would come after this film. And like I was mentioning before, it is essentially a very, very simple, very low budget film. It's entirely shot in interiors, as Charlie was mentioning. Also, was everything was shot in 18 days. Everyone who's an extra is kind of a pal. There's two digital effect shots, I believe. Wow. In the entire you know film. Which they are? I know that the only CGI shot is one of when Dr. Lawrence Gordon is putting his daughter to bed and there's a shot of a mirror and apparently one of the boom guys, because it was such a tight crew and they were rushing to make all of this, his reflection is seen in the mirror, so they had to CGI him out of that and that's that's the only shot of wow. digital effects. But I think the fact of that low budget actually also led to some really great creative decisions. The fact that they are in that bathroom for a really long time, the space that affords them with the characters. I think in some of the later series, it's more common to open with like a 30 second trap where someone is panicking and has hardly any time. And you see that a bit in this entry as well with Amanda and with Flammable Jelly Guy. What's his name, Charlie? Are you talking about software analyst Mark Wilson? Yes, I'm talking about software analyst Mark Wilson. But with these two in the bathroom, with Adam and Lawrence, you get real kind of character work. I think one of the things that struck me with Carrie Elwes was the choice to have him be crying when the maniac is on the phone telling him his family Hmm. are in danger. It's very contrary to that idea of a Charles Bronson or Liam Neeson type father who would immediately be barking, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to track you down. And the fact that Carrie Ellis just performs the weakness of a man who is going to burst into tears at that is lovely. Well, even better, you see him occasionally do the attempted macho gruffness. (laughs) And then the second he's scared, he does this little whimper. And it's amazing. When he's on the phone, he's like, no. Perfect. An- another stellar performance from Carrie Elwes. They don't try to make them too likeable, but they don't try to make them disposable either. I think it's a really nice place for them mm. to land. No, I think they're both flawed. And I think this was his first horror role. He's done a bunch of other stuff kind of in the genre space since then. But they're very flawed men, but he really, really loves his family. And you can see that desperation and it doesn't feel too Hollywood. At this point, it feels extremely desperate like genuinely desperate and at the same time up to a certain point you would still buy a pivot into actually he's behind it all and he's the killer maybe because of the tv ted bundy movie he made maybe because of kiss the girls but he's got that pivot between a sort of slightly cold guy you totally buy him as a doctor who would just callously tell their patients that they have six weeks to live and at the same time managed to care for him in spite of all of that weakness we talked earlier about how the film although they didn't intend for there to be a sequel sets up all these different elements that become really useful in a sequel, like him cutting the jigsaw pieces out of people's bodies. I want to talk about that a bit now, though. The jigsaw skin pieces. What's the logic of that in this film? It's a symbol of how people are missing something from their lives. Did they explain that in this one? (laughs) No. So what? (laughs) Okay, well, his name is Jigsaw. (laughs) 
<laughs> he's not actually called Mr. Jigsaw, though. He's named he? that because of the pieces. It's just a cool wait. horror thing. What are you talking about? Wait, wait, wait. But, like, the logic of that, then, he would surely have been named the Jigsaw Killer by the press. Yes, but because he... of these pieces. Yeah. Yeah, he hasn't leaned into it. I mean, that would be a sort of Zodiac Killer thing to see how the press were talking about him and then create a branding exercise around it. But I think that kind of shows Jigsaw's ego, even through this first film. It's like he needs to take a little piece. He needs to live a signature. It's not just the over-elaborate traps that become his signature thing. It's also he wants everyone to know that that was him. So he takes a little piece of skin from them. And then... The pig's head. That's his other signature in this film. Pig's head. we got, obviously, Billy the Puppet. We've got the spirals visible on Billy the Puppet. We've got the green filter. (laughs) (laughs) We've got Jigsaw's trademark cinematography. (laughs) Uh, And, of course, these would prove... The tape recorder. Very useful when... Oh, the tape recorders, the trap themselves. Analog tech. These would prove very useful as the filmmakers and the filmmakers who later came on board attempted to make one of these films Every single year. Apparently Um, with the pig masks, Lee Wanol originally wanted it to be an actual dead pig that he was wearing. Obviously a prosthetic for the purposes of the filmmaking, but it was supposed to look like Jigsaw himself had gone out and got a pig and like chopped its face off and put it on his head. Well, and that's a great example of one that clearly, though they couldn't have imagined it at that point in the franchise, became invaluable later on Mm. because it anonymizes a lot of the people who are helping Jigsaw which obviously becomes the source of a lot of the tension and mystery in the later films. The telenovela baroque plot. <laughs> also, it's just a really, again, going back to the indie low-budget filmmaking, a really easy way for them to shoot any pickups without having to pay actors for their time again. <laughs> Beyond this franchise, obviously, the massive box office success of this film also birthed a minor horror sub-industry of torture-based horror films. We had the Hostel films, I think, one year later, the first Hostel film yeah, came out. 2005. The film Captivity. With, with Elijah Cuthbert, with right? Elijah Cuthbert, yeah. who, which I, I think these were all Lionsgate films. Lionsgate was really the home of the torture horror movie. There's also Devil's Rejects, the whole Rob Zombie era. I mean, I know people don't class it as torture porn, but I would argue that The Passion of the Christ, which came out the same year Saw, is yes, a torture porn Anna, film. controversial. <laughs> <laughs> but to be honest, I don't know. I have... Certain issues with Saw being called like the birth or the instigator of what people have called torture porn horror. It's much more interested, I think, in exploring themes of morality and accountability and what makes a person good or what makes a person deemed punishable and deserving of punishment and what makes a person want to survive and exit an extreme situation rather than just torturing someone for the pleasure of watching them getting tortured. Yeah, and I think it's also a film that has sort of very specific and quite commendable ideas about taking horror seriously because it's come off the back of the 90s. There's so much arch self-referential humour. Lee Wannell talked about how one of the things he wanted to avoid with Saw was stuff like the cat scare or the fake out when someone bangs on their friend's car door window and it's like, you forgot your wallet and the audience all jumps. Like Those kinds of moments. He's like, if I'm going to scare you, it's got to be actually it's a guy in a pig mask who's going to abduct you from your closet. All of the scares have to be real and mean something. And they mean something because it's kind of also imbued with the paranoia of the era as well. Like anybody could be the killer, like we were talking about before. Anybody could be under the pig mask. Anybody could be the jigsaw killer or one of his test subjects or one of his apprentices. So it's the idea that anybody could be the villain and you can't really tell who it is until you reach the end of the game. 
I'm afraid that like uh, Dr. Lawrence and Adam towards the end of this movie, we might be running out of time. So something we wanted to kick off as a regular part of Seeing Sword is a definitive ruling on the best trap. In a feature, we are calling Jigsaw's Trap Race. So we've got a few to choose from in Saw, obviously. The bathroom trap, I don't know if we can even call it a bathroom trap, but the central premise of the film, the would you saw off your own foot trap. There's the razor wire maze that we referenced earlier, the flammable jelly, the reverse bear trap, the drill chair, (laughs) the quadruple shotgun hallway trap, and obviously Zepp Hindle with the poison coursing through his veins, desperate to obtain the antidote. That's kind of Zepp Hindle's trap. Yeah, I mean, I think a few we can, for me at least, we can rule them out as not really in contention. I mean, the, Okay, wow, coming out the gate strong. The trap where Detective Stephen Singh is shot by a bunch of shotguns that are hanging over a doorway. Agreed. It's not really a trap. It's a booby trap. It's a yeah. booby trap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fair. He I, has I'll... no chance of escape. The drill chair with old Jeff Riddenhauer... Uh, <laughs> Again, I Remind think, me who Jeff Riddenhauer is. Jeff, we don't know a lot about Jeff Riddenhauer. He's uh, just been caught by Jigsaw. He wakes up in a trap when the police have arrived to uh, confront Jigsaw in his workshop. And Jigsaw says something about Jeff being a test subject. Like, you're a part of something larger than yourself. You're a test subject. It's almost like he's implying he's going to use this trap again on someone else. And that he has rehearsals. Which would really suck if you were a subject of a rehearsal Jigsaw trap. You don't even... <laughs> get to be in like the canon it would make a lot of sense though because they generally go off so flawlessly and i think anyone who's ever done any kind of diy project will know that the first iteration is usually not as successful although he's also an accomplished engineer so maybe he's just the guy who gets well and don't forget we find out in this film that before he even does the test he's building a little maquette and putting little dolls in it and even covering them in like ketchup for fake blood yes that's yeah. so precious he does a diorama i love it he takes it very seriously and actually i do think that having rehearsal traps and rehearsal test subjects kind of complicates his high ground moral standing because then who are these people that well he's we don't punishing? know jeff riddenhauer might be a wrong and <laughs> it's not made clear he does escape however but not by actually playing the game detective steven singh just shoots the mechanism and breaks the trap Anyway, I think we can rule that out. We can probably just look at the big two or three in this film being the razor wire maze, the uh, flammable jelly with old software analyst Mark Wilson, and the reverse bear trap. I mean, what do you think about the bathroom trap? The bathroom trap, that's more or less just the premise of the film. Yeah, but it is a good trap. Yeah, I mean, Jigsaw has a line at some point in the franchise, the best traps are the simple traps. And Mm. I kind of go along with that because I love the time frame on the bathroom trap. Like you you have until 6pm. It's not one of these 30 second dig a key out of your eye or your head's going to explode type traps. It's psychological. It gets in there. I'm Mm. going to pitch the bathroom trap as my trap of the film. Yeah, I mean, I think actually if we boil that one down to its basic premise, which is saw off your old, your your old, your own foot, (laughs) saw off your old foot, mate. And if you don't, you don't in the room that is a good prompt for a jigsaw trap i perhaps agree now you've maybe talked me around i mean the reverse bear trap also has a beautiful simplicity you know find the key for this trap or it will rip your jaw off and it's iconic and it also shows off jigsaw's engineering skills however for me it falls down because there is no self-sacrifice required to take the trap off you just have to kill someone else yeah that's the point i feel like a classic element of any good jigsaw trap is that the self-sacrifice aspect i mean there's a moral sacrifice i suppose but i think 
Yeah, most I mean, yeah, I think we're going to maybe coalesce around the bathroom trap, which, you know, is a little obvious. I'm going to throw a spanner in the work, guys. Mm. I'm going to go with the flammable jelly one. Software analyst Mark Wilson. Yes. And I'll tell you why, because it feels extremely sadistic. It's probably one of the most sadistic traps in the film. So I have one question about this trap, which Mm. as a defender of it, maybe you can answer. The premise is that software analyst Mark Wilson has to move around the room covered in flammable jelly, Mm -hmm. holding a candle, which is brilliant, Yes. uh, in order to read numbers off the wall in order to open a safe which has an antidote or something in it? It has the antidote, and he has to figure out the combination for the safe through all the numbers that are written on the wall, and there's broken shards of glass on the floor. But there are, like, thousands of numbers on the wall, so does he just have to try them all? Yes, but the candle... Has I'm, a limited time span on it, so it, it's pretty much he will die. It's impossible. This is my issue with but, the trap because you don't even know where to start with the numbers. You'd have to just try starting with every wait, single one. But wait, I think this is where the fact that Mark Wilson is a software analyst comes in play. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So you're saying this is a trap that makes sense only to the trappy and not to us, the audience? Yes, we're way too dumb to understand the trap. Fine, yeah. Jigsaw like loves it. a delicious irony, but I didn't know he also loved giving people a little helping hand based on their <laughs> particular set of skills. Well, I think, you know, as we've established, he finds his victims through LinkedIn and all of the traps are somewhat tailored to their professional skills as well. So how do we decide this? Well, the razor wire maze we should talk about as well, because that is one of the... I don't know that we need to talk that much about it. You don't like the razor wire maze? He's just in some wire. That's it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> He's in some wire. There's a lot of wire, Charlie. He's in some wire. It's a very dramatic amount of wire. Get out of the wire. Well, it is horrible, though. (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't want to be in that wire, mate. I mean, you got me there. There is a little detail about how there's stomach acid on the floor or something, implying that the razor wire got right through, I guess, Mm. the outer layer of his skin, his fat, his ribs, and through into his stomach. So... I mean, that's brutal. It's also a classic instance of the sped up editing. You see what Mm. must have taken, I guess, hours to film of this actor crawling around in, I hope for his sake, rubber razor wire. I tell you what I'll give the wire is that Jigsaw has devised a, like there's often a bit of a faulty logic with some of the irony at work in these traps. And it is ironclad in this instance. He's punishing the guy for having attempted suicide, but he puts him in a situation where if he does nothing, he will die and, to quote Jigsaw, like, get his wish. And in fact, to save his life, he has to do the gruesome thing. Here's something I've never scrutinised. Maybe you can figure it out for me. When does Jigsaw get the piece of Jigsaw skin from the guy in the razor wire? I had the exact same thought on this latest rewatch. The whole thing is that the door slams shut on him, right? And he's left there to rot if he doesn't solve the razor wire maze. Yeah, but then he pops back in. Jigsaw pops back in. He pops back Pretty in. Pretty sure he pops back in. He always pops back in. He pops back He's in. always watching them. He's a voyeur. He yes. always was. And there is a very funny line that the great Dina Mayer from Starship Troopers and Friends gets to say, which is, looks like our friend Jigsaw likes to book himself a front row ticket to his games. <laughs> and it feels like it's slightly from a different kind of procedural movie, maybe even a sort of CSI type TV show and not of the world where we have men breaking down because their families are in danger. So did I talk you around on the bathroom trap or is Anna still sticking firmly st- to her flammable jelly? I'm sticking firmly to my flammable jelly. I think I'm going to come across and join you with the bathroom trap and overpower 
even the the allure of software analyst Mark Wilson. <laughs> so there you have it, the bathroom, the definitive best trap from the first sort of film, according to our panel of us. And I guess a little look ahead to what we have coming up in the next episode. Charlie, maybe a quick pricey of the delights of Saw 2. Yes, so Saw 2, for me, is really where you know the franchise works out what it is and what it's going to be. It's very similar to the first film in a lot of ways. It's also very different in certain other ways. And most importantly, we learn a lot more about everything. I can't wait. Anna, do you have a moment from Saw 2 that you're looking forward to seeing again? Perhaps something disgusting or scary? Well, there are a lot of family issues. There are a lot of father-son traumas. A lot of needle-based action. Needle-based action. That is particularly it. triggering at this moment in time and history. And if you've enjoyed that episode, just a reminder that Spiral from the Book of Saw is out on the 14th of May or the 17th if you're in the UK. And we urge you to get along to that one and play a new set of games. Thanks so much for listening and please remember to rate, review and always, always check the bathwater for the keys to the leg shackles before you let the water out. Seeing Saw, the official Spiral podcast, is a Little Dot Studios production for Lionsgate. The show is hosted by Catherine Bray, Anna Bogutskaya and Charlie Shackleton. It's produced by Jake Cunningham and Harold McShiel with production support from Ellie Aitken. And we are edited by Content is Queen. Oh my God, Anna. <gasps> I think we might be in... Catherine's trivia trap. You are. You're caught in my trivia trap. So my trivia trap for this episode is the fantastic piece of information that Mike Butters, who plays Paul Lee, the guy who expires in a maze of razor wire, was actually apparently offered the role of Jigsaw, but turned it down because he didn't think it was a big enough part. 